I want to reflect with you today and in the next two weekends hence on the question of how we bring the grace of God to the controversial and difficult topic of race in our times. Even the word race feels a little inflammatory to some of us. Uh, Just the mention of that particular word kicks up a variety of emotions, particularly in light of the circumstances, the news items of our time. For some of us, the feeling that kicks up is mainly anger, or perhaps pain, or perhaps defensiveness, or weariness, or hopelessness before what seems to be just the intractable conflicts and struggles of our age. The race card gets associated with so many controversial events in our nation's history, with so many difficult circumstances in our current news cycles. It so easily polarizes people along partisan lines, along generational lines, along geographical lines. Few topics are more fraught with feeling and more likely to tick everybody off at some point than this one. So why are we tackling it? Why start the year with this kind of a conversation? I want to tell you why I feel it crucial that we have this discussion together. One reason is simply because our society needs it so much. America cannot possibly flourish, I believe, without building better race relations than we currently have. Like you, I love this country. I I long to see it thrive in the future. I, I believe God has blessed these United States in unusual ways. I see the record of so much good in the life of our country. But I also know that our history is stained with racism. Our nation's history and life, even to this day, is stained with a pattern that I'm going to go into in in further depth next week of treating those of a different race, culture, class, color as less than fully human, as less than fully like us, and dealing with them as we would never want to be treated ourselves. That's my working definition of racism, of treating those of different color, class, or culture as less than fully human in the sense that we would define ourselves and therefore of dealing with them as we would not want to be treated ourselves. Now, we have tried to change this. Uh, If we're going to speak authentically about this, we will have to acknowledge that we have tried to change this about American culture. In recent decades, we've made some very, very important strides in the right direction to redress injustices, to bridge divides, to try and create more opportunity for all. I know that many of you sitting here in this room or within the sound of my voice, you've made efforts to grow beyond whatever cultural experience you may have had in the past to be part of a solution, to be part of creating a better kind of society. You've given yourself in a variety of ways to this effort. I think it's hard to agree with those who suggest that there have been no progress made over recent decades. I hear those voices from time to time that we've made no progress towards the dream of Dr. King that there would come a day when, when our children or ourselves would be judged not by the color of our skin but by the content of our character. I believe we've made progress. 
But we have not arrived. We have not arrived at the ultimate destination yet. The violence that we continue to see on our streets with, with devastating frequency today and varieties of circumstances, the many African-American and Latino people who seem stuck in a cycle of poverty and of incarceration, the fear and the ignorance and the anger that continues to separate people of different racial backgrounds, the responsibility and productivity and, and prosperity that is not being unleashed as we have the potential to unleash it. These are all clues, I think, that something is still broken. No matter how hard we have tried, no matter how far we have come, something is still not as it should be. This is not the kind of flourishing that the kingdom of God implies. And if we don't do something about this, if we do not get even more serious than we have been about trying to address what at the root is gone wrong in our society, it is going to get worse. And, and, and I'm, fright, I'm speaking as one voice. I'm frightened by that future. We know that, that even if we uh, lock down our borders, as some have suggested would be the healthiest thing for America at this particular time, mere birth rates mean that by 2044, no single racial group will hold a majority in American life. We will be a nation of very large very potent racial groups with no one holding the majority and the potential for further fragmentation, chaos, cultural conflict is great in that kind of a scenario. So if we want the future of America to be one of hope and not of horror, then there is an urgent need now to do the kind of hard work of building more understanding, a common sense of a place at the table better partnership between people of different races than we have at the present moment. And that is where I think you and I come in. That's where I see a potential leverage point that is very significant and that makes me want to address this situation together. This is the second reason why I feel led to talk with you about this very volatile topic. It is because as Christians, we are uniquely positioned to be of creative help in this area. We are uniquely positioned to be a constructive agents for the kingdom of God in this area of our society's life. We have been unusually equipped by our history as the people of God, our theology from the Bible for such a time as this. Even when we have failed to live up to the vision, and at times the Christian church uh, throughout history has failed to live up to its calling as the people of God, even when we have failed to do so, and we have failed, even as an American church within our history, we are the community, nonetheless, whose scriptures teach that all people are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. We are the people who have the vision directly from God of the value of every human life and of all of the culture's and the races of our world. We are the community that knows that whatever color we are on the outside, all of us are tainted by sin on the inside. All of us are desperately in need of a grace from beyond ourselves to address what we do not know how to fix in ourselves. We're the people that understand that whether our skin happens to be black or brown or yellow or, or white, God so loved the whole world that he covered us all in red. 
That's the common color that we share. Blood red, the blood of Christ that God poured out for our sake and for that of the whole world. Christians are the community that God formed at Pentecost out of Medes and Parthians and Cappadocians and Elamites and people of many other races and traditions to show how serious he was about creating a new kind of community, a different kind of kingdom, an alternative culture that could bring together people and redeem everyone. We are the people who know that many of the greatest creations that God has made, the body of Christ, not least among them, are made up of many diverse members and that these various parts and distinctions and differences are not a curse, but are in fact a blessing. They do bring something to the greater whole that we would be lost and less without. Amidst a culture that is increasingly fearful of strangers. And I recognize there's some reason for fear. These are not irrational emotions. But we are nonetheless, as the Christian church, people that will and must, by virtue of our calling, resist the pressure that is being stirred up by the relentless anxiety of the media today, a media that frankly makes its money by keeping us on edge, by keeping us tuned in. We must remember always that God, and I quote scripture, has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that if any people anywhere are in a position by virtue of their background, their beliefs, their God, to be creative agents in this particular moment of history. It is the Christian community, as Jesus envisioned it, founded it, and continues to supply it by his grace. And so were we, as an individual church and as part of a larger uh, tide of churches across our country, were we truly successful at being the courageous, creative agents that God has called us to be at this time? It would not just help forge a more unified nation, though that would be a worthy end in itself. I believe it might well help to bring about the restoration of fascination with the Christian gospel and might well help to bring about the kind of spiritual revival That is our nation's deepest need, our most profound need as a people. So here is what I want to do with this series. I want to to think about specific creative actions that individually and corporately we might take to be part of making a dent in this area in a positive way. Each week, I want to offer you just a few creative actions that can move us forward on this journey, and I'm going to call these actions gracist behaviors. Gracist behaviors. I'm borrowing from the term gracism, uh, the title of a book by David Anderson, a very provocative, helpful book, because, because these behaviors are where God's grace meets the subject of race. 
in a creative way. Anderson says, and I quote, Gracism, unlike racism, does not focus on race for negative purposes, such as discrimination or recrimination. I would suggest to you that when when we talk about race today, one of the reasons why it raises hackles for us is that almost every time it gets raised, it's, it's, it's to point out something awful. And there are things that are awful in history, in our present times that need to be confessed. But what I love about this concept of gracism is that gracism focuses on race for the purpose of positive ministry and service. It aims at building redemptive relationships that further the purposes of the kingdom of God. And I think that's what we need right now in our time, more of. Redemptive relationships that extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God. So here's the first gracist behavior I want to recommend. Be honest. Be be really honest. Admit it to yourself and everybody else that you talk to on this subject. This is hard work. (laughs) This area is really hard work. Several years ago, I, I was part of a of an, a relationship-building experience called the Justice Journey. And I and a number of other leaders from Christ Church over a period of several years participated with members of the Willow Creek Community Church and the Salem Baptist Church in downtown Chicago in, in, in a learning adventure that took us on a bus together through the uh, civil rights, most famous civil rights sites of the Old South. And the way this thing worked is you got on this bus... And you spent a week with a whole bunch of other people, half uh, African-American, half Caucasian-American. You had a seatmate that was the other race. You were involved in small groups that were mixed up, different generations of white people, black people, uh, in conversation. You watched films, you read books, you visited museums. And the purpose of this was to have a a focused and sustained conversation about the subject of race in America and our own experiences with it. And and I want to tell you that it was excruciating to to all of us. Isn't that right? At first, anyway, these conversations were really hard. And one of the reasons why they were hard is you were afraid to be honest. You were afraid to, 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 to say what you'd grown up believing or what you had experienced because you were not sure the other people would believe you or give value to that. Uh, People were afraid to say what they thought because they were afraid they would then be branded as racist or, or that somebody that was one of their peers might suddenly go, Oh, you believe that you feel that. Um, and, and we were concerned that, that we didn't even know how to use the words. We didn't know which words to use. Do I say African-American? Do I say black? Is it okay to call somebody white? Uh, We were like on eggshells around each other. In our current day, you can just look at how differently and how passionately many of uh, people respond to to language. Uh, How many white Christians and African-American Christians have responded so passionately and profoundly different to statements like, black lives matter or police lives matter. You know, the whole room can go up just over a phrase like that. And and the different understandings we have, the histories we bring, 
to our assertion of those terms. Let me say just as a sidebar, I I don't mean to suggest that race challenges are confined to the black-white relationship. I I don't mean to suggest that at all. I don't even want to suggest that everybody in, in the black community or the white community thinks monolithically about these things. My experience has been when you get in those conversations, you discover to your surprise there's tremendous diversity of opinion within circles, within communities. But I do want to talk probably more frequently than, than, than not about the African-American and Caucasian-American experience and relationship because those are the two largest segments of this congregation and these are all the news right now. This is in the news right now. So I want to refer to them but only as a pointer to the wider context of the issue of race in our time. As David Anderson observes, racism is not reserved for one color or culture of people. It is an equal opportunity destroyer. And it's destroying in a lot of other parts of our world today as well. This tribalism, this intense hatred, fear, striving after our own at the expense of others, This is an equal opportunity destroyer. So, dare to be honest. Dare to be honest, at least with yourself, about where you're starting from. Because all of us bring prejudice to this issue. Every one of us, I think, uh, brings some some mental models, some particular passions, some some, uh, particular experiences. Just be willing to confess what yours are right now. And that even talking about this stuff feels risky. Just feels like it could do damage. Then secondly, listen deeply. Be honest and then listen deeply. A pretty good rule of thumb in almost every area of life is to listen twice as much as you talk. It's the ears-to-mouth ratio. Two to one, God gives us that visual aid. That is especially, especially important in the area of race relations. Uh, So many of us are moving through life just having never really immersed ourselves in what it would be like to be the other person. Uh, We find ourselves so often just reacting out of what we know, what we've seen, what we've experienced, Find somebody of a different race in the days to come and ask them what their story is. Ask them to tell you their story, as much of it as they will, around the subject of of how the issue of race has impacted their life in one way or another. I was in conversation. We have this wonderful uh, fellowship within our church called the Bridge Community. And the Bridge Community is a a multiracial fellowship. Uh, A lot of storytelling goes on in that on that, in that particular circle. And uh, I was chatting with, with a friend uh, who's connected uh, to that group, African-American gentleman, and he described to me um, the experience of playing in one of our local parks around here with his daughter. Now, this is a young, successful, well-educated business guy. He's in the park with his little daughter. They're just having the kind of time you all of us want to have with our kids. It's just a, a lovely, peaceful moment. All of a sudden, uh, uh, police cars come screeching up, and he's suddenly surrounded by a phalanx of, of police officers. 
And, and this young, very put-together professional, you know, his lip, as he's telling me this story, his lip is trembling. There, there's water in his eyes as he describes what he's feeling in this particular moment and the treatment that follows. And then the reaction of his little daughter as she looks with fear and misunderstanding and, and sort of a, a perspective-altering sense of, oh my, at, at her father who's withering in the presence of this experience. And I believe he was telling me the truth. I believe this happened to him because he went on to tell me multiple experiences that he had had around just this one sphere of life that I have never had. I've had some run-ins with the law, uh, but never quite the same way as, as my friend had experienced the laws. I've gone on to hear many of, uh, of, of folks within our congregation who are non-Caucasian have experienced w- with, with the law. I've also asked people in law enforcement about their experiences. That's an eye-opener. What's it like, I've asked, to, to, to be you, trying to do good in the midst of really difficult circumstances, not knowing whether you're coming home at the end of the day, knowing that, that people are looking now at you with, with very suspicious eyes because of these news. What's it like to be you, trying to do good as a follower of Jesus in these circumstances? And the answers I get to those kinds of questions expand my heart and my mind, too. So... Here's some stories that you haven't heard yet. Opinions have this way of just bouncing off of us. They leave us unchanged. Stories, they can change us in in important ways. It's why Jesus told so many of them, I suspect. Believe the stories you hear. Believe them. They're not made up. They're not a political agenda trying to twist you. They're people's authentic experience. Do not try and talk people out of their feelings when they share them with you. They're, being, they're taking a risk. They're being vulnerable when they're telling you what they've experienced. And when it kicks up you know, awkwardness in you, don't, don't let that control you. If you want to be somebody that helps to creatively change the current climate in America, build a different level of relationship with somebody of another race, maybe with multiple people's, of another race and listen to their stories. Just listen to their stories. Listen deeply. Be honest. Thirdly, learn more. Commit yourself to learning more than you know about this whole dimension of life. You know, the story of race in America is very complicated. Uh, it, is, it is deep and multifaceted and multilayered. And it is probably unreasonable, if not disrespectful, to think that any one person of another race is going to be able to sort of explain it all to you. You know, they're going to be able to give you a piece of it, what they've seen of it, what they've studied and learned. But this subject is so large and so important, it probably commends our uh, looking for a broader band of education on the subject. And I think that those of us in the racial minority or majority... We especially need to do this because the nature of being in the majority is that history is always told from your point of view, or at least mostly told from your point of view. 
I, I remember moving to Northern Ireland many years ago. I shared with you this was the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland. I had a pretty good fix on what was going on there. I had read the book Trinity. I obviously had knew everything there was to, I needed to know on the subject. I had met some people from Ireland. I'd had one or two conversations. I obviously was an expert on what was going wrong there. I was surprised when I lived there for two years and I began to read more broadly and I began to learn so much more at how vastly more complicated that situation actually is. If I had relied on just what I saw on the news or what I, I had learned already, I'd have been useless in that context. And yet what I learned really helped to make sense of what was going on there in, in, a, in a very useful way. I feel the same way now, having digested the content of lots of books and films and museums and, and a variety of other resources on the subject of the civil rights movement and the African-American experience in particular. I, am, I have learned more. I am still on the journey. I am not even close to an expert in this area. But I still have questions. I have things that I would like my brothers and sisters of color to do differently from my vantage point. But my perspective on what is going on today in our inner cities, my perspective on, on, on what black and brown people are enduring there with courage and faith and why some of them don't, why some of them aren't living in faith or, or in, in my understanding of courage, my grasp of, what, of why folks in the inner city can't simply bootstrap themselves out of the situation, why they can't all be Ben Carsons, my grasp of that has grown. It's growing still. So here's my challenge to you. Go further on a learning journey of your own. Read some books. Get a hold of some resources, watch some films, visit some museums. We're going to be posting this week ahead on our website a phenomenal annotated bibliography, a resource list of, of some useful ways that you can go further with this. Take advantage of that. We'll put in our bookstore some very helpful books. My major idea is do not be content with what you think you already know on the subject because the subject is so central to the gospel and so important to the future of America. It begs us to learn even more. Finally, gracism requires that we be humble. We need to be honest. We need to listen. We need to learn. And we need to do all of this with humility. Because when you're honest with others and truly listen and you start to learn more than you knew, you'll be confronted with some things that are very hard to take. You will feel extremely defensive. They will make you want to deny or to argue or to protect or to rationalize your existing worldview and, and your sense of identity. Resist that impulse. Resist that impulse and just sit in that lower place, in that difficult place, in that posture of openness to what God is trying to do in the circumstances. Think how many times people of color have had to take correction from white folks 
and zip up about it. Think how many times that happens. And uh, they have just sat with it. Our standard in these things is always the Bible. We don't do this because it's politically correct. We don't do this because it's socially convenient. We do this above all because we're called to by the scriptures. The Apostle Paul writes, and I quote, do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the thing, by the way, that makes us different as the followers of Jesus. We live for the sake of others, like he did. For the sake of others is our passion, our distinction, in a world that's living so often for itself. In your relationships, says Paul in Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what was that mindset? Though he was equal with God, Paul goes on to say, he counted that equality with God not something to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. He's our standard. He's the one that we constantly need to hold ourselves up by. Jesus himself puts it this way. When you're invited into the kind of encounters I'm suggesting, take the lowest place. Take the place of humble servanthood so that when your host, and this means God here, when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. For all those who exalt themselves, their point of view, their ideas, their worldview, their power, their position, even if it's legitimate, his was legitimate. Remember that. He was God. He was legitimate. But he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. To sum it all up, I guess what I'm saying is have dinner with some strangers in the day's head. Many people of another color, another racial experience, they're strangers to us. They are largely strangers to us. Make a commitment to really gathering at some table and hear somebody else's story, a story you probably do not know as well as you think. See what God does with that feast. Give a banquet, says Jesus. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and who of us isn't one or all of those things? Think about it. Who of us isn't one or all of those things at some point? Give that kind of a banquet and you'll be blessed, says Jesus. You'll be blessed. You'll be doing something creative to change the course of race relations in America. You may not, you can't control it all, but you can do something in the sphere where you stand. Uh, You'll be doing something creative to change that societal pattern, you will be, even more than that, witnessing to the character of the kingdom of God, and you will be preparing for the day, that coming day, when a great multitude that no one can count from every nation and tribe and people and language will gather at the banquet table of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of this world. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we pray that you, who are the lover of our souls, the creator of this earth, the heavenly Father who sees all, will have your way with us. That you will take us on this good journey, this difficult but good journey, and continue to shape in us a heart, mind, soul, and strength like Jesus himself. Until that coming day, Lord God, when you gather us from all over this world into one people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.